are going to still be in 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel chapter 23. Uh, before we get started, let's pray though. Dear God, thank you for allowing us to be here today and to worship you, whether we're able to be here in person or worshiping you online here at our house. God, Lord, we are thankful that you defeated death and sin for us, that you rose from the grave, like that song said, God, and that the power um, is in us, God. And I pray now as we look at this story from 1 Samuel 23 and the life of David and the hurt he experienced, Lord, that you would give us comfort and peace, help us to see who you are and to draw closer to you. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I... One of my favorite movies, or really franchises of all time, is Star Wars. In fact, I actually like it so much, I'm kind of surprised when I got to thinking about it this week. I really haven't talked about it that much over the past year. In fact, I don't know if I've ever used a Star Wars illustration here, which surprises me because I've liked it a lot. I used to be crazy for it when I was a kid. And I've, I've kind of grown, you know, not as fond of it as I've gotten older as I've done with most movies, actually. Um, but one of the movies that is on the original perfectly illustrates what I want to talk about today. And it's the movie The Empire Strikes Back. In the movie The Empire Strikes Back, Han, Leia, Chewie, and C-3PO are trying to flee from the evil empire and the villain Darth Vader. And they flee to the city called Cloud City where Han has a friend named Lando. And Lando, when they come here, he's basically the mayor of the city, and he treats them right. I mean, he, he fixes up their ship, he fuels it, he gives them all beds, all kinds of clothes, food. I mean, Lando just seems like the perfect friend to all of them. And then one day they're invited to come to a nice dinner, and so they're all dressed up, they're ready to go to this dinner, and they walk to the door, and the door opens, and they look up, and Darth Vader, the villain, is sitting at the front of the table. Immediately, stormtroopers flood into the halls and capture all of them. Han Solo is given over to a bounty hunter. Chewie and Leia are thrown to jail. C-3PO, who's a robot, he's torn apart. Want to make sure he's a robot so y'all get that apart if you haven't seen it. All because Lando betrays them. And even the main character, who's Luke Skywalker, he comes to try to save his friends. And he doesn't fare well either. He gets into a fight with Darth Vader, his hand gets cut off, and the only way he escapes is because he has to fall down a ventilation shaft, completely defeated. And moviegoers who watch that realize that the Empire Strikes Back is a tragedy. It's a tragedy because it's all about being betrayed and being deceived by your friends. And that's the topic I want to talk about today is betrayal in 1 Samuel 23. I don't want you to raise your hand, but if you're here or you're online, and I was to ask people to raise their hand if you've ever felt betrayed before, I would probably guess that a lot of you, if not most of you, would raise your hand. And betrayal hurts, it, and it doesn't just hurt because of what happens. It's not just the act of what happened to us that hurts. Betrayal hurts more because of who did it to us. <clears throat> it's somebody that we had grown fond with, somebody we hung out with, somebody we had a relationship with. And that severing of that relationship, that destruction of that trust, hurts just as much, if not more, than what happened itself. And a lot of times when we face things like betrayal, we wonder, you know, does the Bible address topics like that? And the answer is it does. In fact, that's why God gives us these stories in the Old Testament. 
Because the people that live, these are real people that live real lives, and they experience life just like we do. And so they experience betrayal just like us. And as we read these stories that God has given us, we can begin to see and be comforted by what God has to say to us when we're betrayed, we feel betrayed. And that's what happens to David in 1 Samuel 23. Now, I forgot to make a sermon outline and PowerPoint for today, so if you like taking notes, um, what we're going to look like today is I'm going to talk about 1 Samuel 23, and then I'm going to give you four truths we learn about betrayal from 1 Samuel 23 at the very end. So if you remember and been with us in 1 Samuel, this is what then happened. Saul has been chasing Daniel and I mean, David and ripping him apart and trying everything he can to hurt David. Of no fault of David, he didn't do anything against Saul. David didn't sin. That's just what Saul is out to do. He's attempting to hurt David. And David began his journey of hurt in the previous couple chapters. And he learned in this very early part, he was kind of struggling in his faith. He didn't really know what to do. And God taught him one lesson in the very beginning of his journey. And that is you need to trust God in your hurt because he's worthy to be trusted in our hurt. He provides exactly what we need. He protects people who follow his way. And he comforts us with a king who's also been hurt. So David, he's now in this passage. And he kind of takes a step forward in chapter 23. It's a little bit of a transition because he's no longer going to hide He's no longer going to be all about himself, but he's going to begin to move forward and start serving God and doing things for the Lord and glorifying God in his hurt. But we see that even as he begins to move, take these steps forward in his walk, that doesn't exempt him from further pain, especially with betrayal. And so we get to chapter 23 in 1 Samuel, and we read the first six verses. It says, then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are plundering the threshing floors. And so David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and deliver Keilah. And David then said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the ranks of the Philistines? David inquired of the Lord once more. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I have given the Philistines into your hand. And so David's men went down to Keilah and fought the Philistines, and he led their livestock and struck, led away their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter. And then David delivered the inhabitants of Keilah. Now it came about when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. So David is hanging out in the wilderness, and, and he gets this news that the Philistines are coming and they're attacking this city named Keilah. Now, Keilah was a pretty good place for the Philistines to want to attack for several reasons. One, it was real close to the Philistine region of Gath, so it was easy for them to get in and out. It was also kind of separated from other Israelite cities, so help couldn't come very quickly. Uh, the fortification itself wasn't that strong. And then the threshing floors were actually on top of mountains where they, they couldn't have walls because you needed wind. And so for the Philistines, Keilah was like easy pickings for raids easy access to get taken over. And David hears about this raid that's, that's coming to Keilah, and he thinks, I need to do something about this. I can't just stay hiding forever. And so he does what a man of God is supposed to do, which is he asks God what he should do. And he, that's a 
important to remember here because a lot of times you would think it would be obvious for him to go with tequila. It would be obvious for him to try to defend these guys. But he always asks God first what he wants. And that's what a person of God does. Even when the choice seems obvious, even when it seems like we don't need to ask God what his opinion is, we should go to God first. That shows that he's a man after God's heart. And God answers him directly and says, yeah, go to Tequila, defend these guys. And David's ready to go. Uh, he, he's getting up, he's getting dressed, he's ready to go, but his men are not as confident as he are. That he, he is. They are they looking at this and going, we're afraid of Saul. We're way more afraid of the Philistines. Are you sure that's what God wants us to do? Like, they're not as confident as David that this is what God's will is for them. And so David kind of bows to their will, and he asks God again, and God is even more emphatic. He says, not just go, but he says, give up and go. And he says, not just to defeat the Philistines, but he says, I'm going to give them to your hands like a gift. So off they go, and they go, and they, they fight this greater army of the Philistines, and they win. And it's not just a win, it's a decisive victory. It's a total victory. They even get to plunder the Philistines' own stuff. And you... See this awesome victory for David. And he's cast by this point, not just as a future king for Israel, but now he's also a savior. He's Kelah's savior. Now this story is pretty awesome through verse 6, but it's even more telling when you remember King Saul. <coughs> and we look back at King Saul's life. Because inside chapter 14, God had, in chapter 15, God had told Saul the same words, go and get up and attack the Amalekites, and Saul didn't really do that. And he had told Saul in chapter 14 to attack the Philistines, and he hadn't really done that. In fact, God didn't even really speak to Saul in chapter 14, where he spoke to David twice. And then the contrast is even greater when you realize what happened in chapter 22. We know because of verse 6 that verses 1 through 5 happen simultaneously with chapter 22, verses 8 through 23. In other words, you can picture this as a split screen. In chapter 22, if you weren't with us, over here on this split screen you have Saul. And he's attacking a city of the Lord's priests and killing innocent men, women, and children. And at the exact same moment on this view of the screen, you have David defending an Israelite city from at the very moment Saul is doing something atrocious, David is doing what Saul should have been doing at that moment, which is saving Israel. And so you get this picture, this contrast of who David is at this time, and it's a great victory for David. But the story doesn't end in verse 6. We keep reading verse 7. And when it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand. For he shut himself by entering the city with double gates and bars. So Saul summoned all the people for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him, so he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is, coming to, is seeking to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. And then they said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men to the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. 
Then David's men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. And it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, and he gave up the pursuit. And David stayed in the wilderness and the strongholds and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So David's doing pretty good. He had just saved Keilah from these people. He's probably bargaining with them, probably getting some friends with them, relationships with them. He's staying in their stronghold. And Saul's spies come and tell Saul, David is in Keilah. He's come out of hiding. He's no longer in the wilderness. He's in the open. And Saul is ecstatic. He's excited because now no longer is David not in hiding, but he's in a place which he knew he could conquer pretty easily. He, he actually is so excited about where David is that he interprets it as being good fortune to him and that God is actually helping Saul and not David. Saul believes that God is helping him because David is in such a precarious situation where he's at right now. And so he summons all these people and he begins marching to Keilah to destroy this Israelite city that David had just saved from the Philistines. David hears about it. He grabs this ephod, the ephod, which was a garment that the priests wore that they used to pray to God to ask his will. And he asks God, is Saul going to come here? And God says, yes. And he says, are the people of Keilah going to betray me? And he says, yes. And Saul and his men, the 400 plus 200 more, they get up and they leave just in time so that Saul doesn't capture them. And then it says that he was moving around the country as if and God did not deliver him into his hand. And so David, he had, I mean, you got a picture of who this is. He had, he had just come out of the pagan territory into Judah, which is what God told him to do. And then he went to this fortress, which God told him to do. And he is perfectly in God's will. He is perfectly in God's plan. He's been perfectly obedient. And despite the fact that David is exactly where God wants him to be, the people he had helped, he had saved, he had supplied, were willing to betray him and would have done it. To the point that he even had to leave because Saul was on his way. And even though Saul interprets, he, he knows all this and he sees this as God being in Saul's favor, the passage is clear by the 14. Even though David is in a dire situation and people are betraying him and he can't stay in strongholds and he's out in the open, God is actually with David, not with Saul. And God makes sure that David does not get in Saul's hands. Verse 15 through 18, you get this little interlude because... David's in the wilderness, and his best friend Jonathan hears about this too. And Jonathan, his best friend, is going to come out. He's, he's going to encourage David in God. And what does it mean that he encourages him in God? It means he didn't just tell him these platitudes, but he pointed David to what God's word had told him. In these verses, he, tell, he reminds David of several things. He reminds David that God had told him Saul is not going to capture him. He secondly reminded David that God had told him you were going to be king one day. He also said, third, that everybody knows this, including Saul, who's chasing you. And he reminds them that they have a covenant friendship. They're going to be best friends till the end. God uses Jonathan to strengthen David as he's been hurt, as he's afraid. He uses this godly friend of his to strengthen him during that time of betrayal. And David's probably feeling pretty good right now. I mean, he's escaped 
because of God's great work in Kila. He's got this friend who has just encouraged him and God during that betrayal. He's moving around in the hill country of Ziph where Saul can't find him. He's probably feeling pretty good. Until it happens again. Verse 19. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the stronghold at Horesh on the hill country of Pachelah, which is near the south of Jeshimon? Now that O king, come down according to all desire of your soul to do so, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed to the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go now, make more sure in the best case see this place where his haunt is, and who has seen him there, for I am told that he is very cunning. So look and learn all the hiding places where he hides himself, and return to me with certainty, and I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Jews. So knowing who David is, and based on what we see in other places in 1 Samuel, we imagine that he's probably been good to the Ziphites. He's protected them, he's provided with them, he's bartered with them, maybe formed some friendships and companionships, and really hoping to get some protection from Saul from them. And they just straight up betray him again. Within a short period of time, he gets not only betrayed once from people that he's held, but he gets betrayed twice. From somebody who's he's held. They don't, and they don't just tell Saul he's with us. They tell him the exact hill David's at. And they basically beg him. What they're saying inside of verse 20, 20 is basically a begging him. They're like, please come down and take this guy. We please come and take David. We're, we're handing him to you on a silver platter. And Saul's again ecstatic about it to the point of believing. That God is with Saul and not David. He sees this dire circumstances that David's in. He interprets these circumstances as David has, God has abandoned David, even to the point of blessing these people for betraying David. But he's not done. Because he tells the Ziphites to go back and act like you're David's friend. Act like you love David. But what I really want you to do is you want to be with me. Tell me. The trade routes he uses. Tell me the places he hides. Tell me the people that are helping him. And the Ziphites go back and do that. So what happens? Verse 25. It says, And they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Malam, and the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And when Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock, staying in the wilderness of Malam. And when Saul heard it, he pursued David in the wilderness of Malam. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, David and his men went on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to see them. So David had traveled a little bit farther away from the last time the Ziphites had seen him, and he hears that the Ziphites have betrayed him. So he moves his people to a more fortified area. Parent called the rock or some mountain in Mama, the wilderness of Mama, that's much more defensible than where he was at now. The Ziphites spies tell Saul, Saul chases them there, and in verse 26, you can feel the tension mounting because Saul is catching up to David, and he's getting closer to David. 
And it's like no matter how, how hard and how fast David has been trying to get away, every single time it looks like Saul is getting closer and closer and closer. Until finally it gets to the point that David's like a squirrel on a tree where he, Saul's going around one side of the mountain and David's going around the other trying all desperately just to keep the mountain between them. That's the only way of escape they have left. But even with that, even acting like a squirrel, Saul is at his heels. They've only got, almost gotten surrounded. He's almost got David in his tracks. And then verse 27, But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. Therefore they called that place the Rock of Escape. And David went out from there and stayed in the stronghold of Ben Gedi. Just when David had no more space left and Saul could taste victory in his mouth, a messenger comes streaming into the camp, into Saul's camp. Hey, you got to come quickly. You've got to come right now. The Philistines are attacking. We need your help, Saul, right now. And Saul had to give up pursuit on David. He had to give up chasing him around this mountain and go attack these Philistines. And David just barely makes it out of there without being caught. And what's interesting is that the passage never explicitly says this. But do we, we look at it and go, okay, the Philistines were the reason why David came out in the first place. And then the Philistines were the reason why he gets saved at the end. Do we want to call that luck? Do we want to call that chance that just before David's caught, the Philistines just happened to fight? Or is there something or someone bigger pulling the strings here? And so in this story, in chapter 23, you've got a man, a man who's after God's own heart, who gets betrayed not once but twice by the very people he's making connections with, helping even save from other Philistines. And so we learn in this story of betrayal these four truths that I want to share with you and point out to you that I hope in Christ would comfort you today if you have felt that way in the past. And the first of those is this, that you can be completely in God's will and still face betrayal. You can be perfectly in God's plan and perfectly obedient to God and still be betrayed. Remember where David was and how he got there. God had told him to go into Judah in the first place in chapter 22. David's there because he followed what God told him to do. God told him to go fight and save Keilah. David's in Keilah because he's exactly where God told him to be. He's probably in Ziph because like all the other times, he asked God first before he went there. Every step of the way, every choice he made, David is completely in God's will. He is completely in God's plan, and yet he's still got betrayed. And somebody might need to hear that today. You can be in God's will and still have been betrayed. And the reason that's important is because sometimes when we face betrayal, we begin to question things. We begin to ask questions like, did I do that situation correctly? Did I face that person correctly? Did God really want me to have a relationship with that person like that? Did I really make the right decision and go to the right place? Was that part of God's plan for me to do that? We can begin to question what God has told us in the past. We can begin to question what the Bible says. We begin to question whether we even are in His will or whether we've even been obedient. Like, 
Uh, I sinned or done something that caused this betrayal to come upon me. And the reality is, you might need to be comforted knowing you can have done everything right and still have been betrayed. Because humans are sinners. Every single one of us has a sin nature inside of us. And that sin nature inside of us, part of that is the ability to betray. Every single one of us has the ability to betray people because of our sin nature. And betrayal happens because we are sinners and we deal with sinners. Not necessarily because you are outside God's will. The second truth we see here is that our circumstances don't necessarily tell us whether we're in God's favor or not. Remember what David's at. I mean, David's in terrible circumstances. He's being in the wilderness or a stronghold that's easily defeated. He's been betrayed twice. He has spies that keep coming to him. He's running low on supplies. He's only got 600 people chasing him. Even Saul himself looks at David and goes, his situation is so terrible, there's no way God is with him still. But we know the truth because it tells us in the chapter that God did not deliver David into Saul's hand. No matter what the circumstances looked like, no matter how fortunate it looked like Saul was or how unfortunate it looked like David was, God was always with David, not Saul. The circumstances did not show where God's favor actually was. And that's something we need to hear today too. Especially in betrayal. Because we can see people who are getting the promotion before us, or getting the sports job in front of us, or getting more friends than us. We can see people who have backstabbed us and been wrong to us and been mean to us, and they seem to be getting all the good benefits. And we can look at ourselves and we can go, oh, it doesn't seem like God is favoring me anymore because of what's going on in my life. And the reality we need to remember is that God's favor is not based on our circumstances. That God's favor is based on the fact that we, like David, have faith in Christ and we are living by Christ. That God promises that he favors us no matter what. He's with us no matter what. And temporary circumstances might not actually show the fact that God loves you, but he does. He still favors those who place their faith in him, even when circumstances show otherwise. So we learn here that uh, the circumstances don't show God's favor. And we learn that you can be in God's will and still be betrayed. The third thing we see here is that God has multiple ways of comforting us when we've been betrayed. And we need to put our places and look for those ways that God can comfort us instead of just looking for one way. We actually see three ways God comforted David in this story. When he's at Keilah, David comes to God, and God directly speaks to him through a prayer with the ephod, which was in that time that God approved the way of hearing a direct spoken word to him. But then when he moves on, he, he walks around the desert, and God doesn't speak to him directly. Instead, he sends a godly friend to him, and through the words of the godly friend, he comforts David again in his betrayal. But then you get over to Ziph, and that time God doesn't speak to him at all. He doesn't send him a friend, and it doesn't even, God's not even mentioned in the story. Because he's working behind the scenes in ways that might even, he might not even see. That God was comforted in him from behind the scenes. 
And the same needs to be reminded with us when we face betrayal that God has multiple means of comforting us. And we need to put ourselves in positions to hear from all of them. We need to put ourselves in positions to hear God speak to us directly. Because we don't have an ephod anymore, but we do have God's word. And God's word is the way he speaks to us directly. So we've got to put ourselves in a position where we can hear God's word when we need that comfort. He also comforts through friends, godly family members, God's friend, godly friends, Bible study leaders, people in our church, these godly members who can speak God's word into us. I mean, do you have godly people around you? Who can say the right words at the right time and point you to the right scripture just when you need to. But we also got to remember in our betrayal that God sometimes works behind the scenes. We sometimes don't see him blazing in like he did at the beginning. Sometimes we don't even see him at all. It seems like he's not around. But just because we don't see him around doesn't mean he's not working behind the scenes to help us. And God actually might be comforting us in ways that we would never realize he did something until we get to eternity. And so that's three of them. And the last one here we see, and it's the most important lesson. In fact, if, you've, if you're online here, you've kind of tuned out on the others. Tune in for this last one because it's the most important lesson of all four of them. Because we learn in this story that people may betray, but God stays. That's the most important lesson in this whole story. People may betray, but God stays. People may betray because, like I said, we have a sin nature. And that's why betrayal hurts. Because the, the people who have sin natures are not just the, the cashier in the grocery store or the stranger we see walking across the street. The people who have sin nature are the very people we know and love. Your family members have a sin nature. Your friends have a sin nature. That have a capacity to betray them. And that's why it hurts. It's the person that you've eaten with. It's the person that you've shared, maybe shared intimate details with. It's the person that you've spent time with. Someone that you've grown close to. And so when the betrayal hurts, not just because of the act, but it's that severing of that trust. That realization that they didn't care for the relationship like they did. That thought that, that loyalty only flowed one direction. Like David felt with Keilah. Like David felt as if when he was helping them. That's what makes betrayal hurts more. And we realize that when we look at humans, all of us have that because we have sin. So what can we say about God when we say he has no sin? We can say that people may betray, but God, he stays. God was always with David. He loved betray David. God didn't betray David. Ziv betrayed David. God didn't betray David. God was with him every step of the way. And what's true of David here is true of Christ in us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans. He says, Who can separate us from the love of Christ, or tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it's written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. No, but in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loves us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor death, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself said before he left, 
I will always be with you, even to the end of the age. People may betray, but Christ always stays. What's amazing about Christ is he always stays with us, and he always loves us, even when we betray him. Because we don't think about that. We don't think of ourselves as being betrayers to Christ, but we are. The Bible doesn't describe sin as something that you do against yourself or something you do against another person. The Bible also describes sin as every sin being a betrayal against God himself. So every sin, it's like Christ has loved you, he's provided for you, he's been good to you, even to the point of dying on the cross for your sins. And when we sin, it's like saying, I don't value that love, Christ, that you showed me on the cross. Every sin is betrayal of Christ. What's amazing with Christ, though, is that even when we betray him every time, he continues to look at us and extend his hands, even with the nails still in nail-scarred hands. There is not a sin that Christ won't forgive you for. There's not an amount of sin that Christ won't forgive you for because Christ always stays. And so David learned this in his thing that even being a godly man or a godly person doesn't keep you from betrayal. That circumstances don't show God's favor. That people sin, but God stays. So in three months, we're going to pray and give you a chance to respond to that. For some of you in here, maybe you realize that you've been the betrayer, and you haven't gone to God or that person about that. Do that. Pray, repent, and seek to be reconciled to God and to that person today. Maybe you're here today, and you know the feeling of betrayal. You can sympathize with David about what those feelings feel like. Run to Christ and seek comfort in knowing that he knows exactly how you feel, except he stays with you anyway. Maybe you're here today and you realize we don't have a relationship with Christ. That, that feeling, that comfort only comes to us when we place our faith in Jesus and surrender to him as our king, which can be a tough decision, but it's a simple prayer. And I'd love to talk to you about that if you want to do that. I'm going to be down here after I pray if you want to talk to me or if you want me to pray for you. you know, these seats are open, this altar is open if you want to come down here and pray also, but you respond as God is talk, talking to your heart.